Our Father in heaven, you are holy and you're righteous and you're good. And we come here today in need of you. We come here today in need of your mercy, in need of your grace. We come here especially in need of what Christ has accomplished for us. His atoning death that has paid the penalty we deserve. His perfect life that has accomplished righteousness that it might be counted to us. And his triumphant resurrection. Whereby in him we too may overcome the grave and hell and sin. So Father, our prayer is simple. As we look to your word now, we pray that you would show us yourself within your word. We pray that you would show us ourselves and we pray that you would show us our Savior. And we pray all of these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, how's how's everybody doing? I'm pretty pumped up from Lord, I need you. How's your week been? Like honest answer. Some in here may be thinking, man, I've had a stellar week. Like every time I pulled the lever, trip sevens, like just crushing it this week. Others, others of you may be thinking something quite different. Like, bro, if you only knew, like this week has been rough. This week has been hard in my life, circumstantially. Or, brother, if you only knew how I've struggled with sin this week. How burdened I feel today as I come in here to worship God. Is there anybody in the room that ever feels condemned? It's an uplifting question, I know. But seriously, anybody in the room that ever feels condemned? Anybody in the room ever wrestle with doubt? Like deep, like dark doubt of the soul? I do. I trust you do too. So I'm glad we're here. Where else would we be? God is incredibly good. He is all wise. He is all knowing. He knows exactly what we need. This whole church thing is his idea. He gave us his word. He gave us this table that we're going to come to later today. He gave us the fellowship of the saints and prayer and song. He gave us these things for our good because we need them. More than anything this morning, as we've already acknowledged so many times, we need Christ. We come here needing to be reassured of our standing before God. Because we've all acknowledged we feel condemned at points. We've all acknowledged that we wrestle with doubt. So we need to be reassured that we are in fact good with God and He is good with us. That we are His children and no longer His enemy. And so now we're going to look to the Bible for that. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can go ahead and open them up to 1 John chapter 3. We are in this first letter of the Apostle John, first of three that we have towards the end of our Bibles. The only books in the Bible, if you're not familiar with uh, looking at one, after 1 John are Revelation, Jude, 3 John, and 2 John. So we are almost at the back of the Scripture. We'll be looking today at verses 19 through 24 of 1 John chapter 3. 
And as you flip there or are still doing that, let me give us just a little bit of context. Those who have been here throughout this series will know most of this, but it's never bad to be reminded. High level, like foundational stuff, John has written into a church context to bolster the assurance of the redeemed. He has written to comfort the redeemed saints in a church context that has been under siege from false teaching and has been bombarded also by apostasy, people leaving, leaving the church and leaving them. John, more immediately, in the last chapter or so, has been exhorting his hearers, his readers, to keep trusting Christ. He's been exhorting them to press on and striving after righteousness. And he has exhorted them also to press on in loving one another. Trust Christ, practice righteousness, love one another. Those are his encouragements. He has pointed out how trusting Christ, abiding, right, resting in, hoping in Jesus. He has pointed out that practicing righteousness and loving the brothers, all of those things characterize those who have been born again. That's been made very clear. He's writing to people that he understands to be born again. And those who are born again trust Christ. Those who are born again practice righteousness, imperfectly but really. Those who trust Christ love one another, imperfectly but really. That's what we've been considering. And we look today at a paragraph that comes right on the heels of all that, right on the heels of those exhortations, those encouragements. And it's important, I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards out on the table in terms of what I understand this paragraph to be about, what I understand John to be doing in verses 19 through 24. This paragraph, the purpose of it is to comfort the condemning heart. The purpose of this paragraph is to comfort the condemning heart. And we're going to think more about that. John, as I've already said, has been quite clear that his readers have been born again. And yet it seems that John the Apostle, a pastor, he understands and knows that doubts and fears are real amongst the saints. And so let me read this paragraph for us before we go any further. I'll be reading verses 19 through 24 of 1 John chapter 3. This is the word of God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have five points for us today. And I know some of you are already getting nervous. You're like, brother, we know you. It's ambitious. I reassure you that points three and four are quite brief. One and two will be relatively long. I'm just just saying this now so that you're not anxious. Halfway through point two, thinking, my goodness, we're going to be here all day. 
So before uh, we go, well, I guess now that we're jumping into this, excuse me, we're just going to go right into point one. Point one is this. I'll repeat it twice for the copious note takers in the room. Number one, our hearts often condemn us. Number one, our hearts often condemn us. You can put your eyes on verse 20, the very first part of it. I'm just going to pull this brief phrase out. We're going to think about this for a minute. For whenever our hearts condemn us, I'm not sure that that four is the greatest translation, but just the reality, whenever our hearts condemn us, it happens. So let's just think about that before we consider the other things that the Lord would say to us from this passage. Our hearts often condemn us. Amen, somebody. Why? That's a good question to ask all the time. Why is that the case? I would offer as the first answer, because we're sinners. Because we are sinners, our hearts often condemn us. It's legitimate. It's legitimate that our hearts would condemn us that our consciences would rise up and condemn us. My goodness. I mean, even in a gathering this size, think of how we have sinned this week. Just this week. Forget the rest of our lives before that. How we have sinned in our thoughts. How we have sinned in our desires. How many desires have you had that are wicked? We've sinned in the things we've said. We've sinned in the ways that we have felt in our emotions. We've sinned in what we've done. Every one of us has brought baggage in here this morning. Just looking at the track record of our week, every one of us has. So in that sense, it's entirely legitimate that our hearts would rise up and say, you're guilty. You're guilty. You've sinned. God, after all, made us He made us to know him. He made us to love him. He made us to obey him, to honor him. And we all, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. We have gone, each of us, to our own way. We, all of us, every one of us, seek after all kinds of things that are not the greatest thing. That being the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't seek that as we should. Why do our hearts condemn us? Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. Let's see if any of this resonates with you. It does with me. Paul writes, I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. You ever been there? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Maybe it's depression. Or despair. Maybe it's fear or worry or anxiety. Maybe it's grumbling. Here I am again, complaining. I don't like my life. Maybe it's anger. I don't want to blow up at people that I care about, but I'm doing it again. Maybe it's lust. It's late at night, you're lonely, and you're in front of the computer screen again. Maybe it's a substance or a different kind of addiction like gaming and you're there again. And in your spirit, in your inner being, you hate those things. You don't want to do those things. 
but you find yourself doing them again. The Apostle Paul goes on, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You ever been there? See, it's good for us to illustrate and understand Scripture with Scripture. So we're reading from the Apostle John this morning, and we're also understanding what John is driving at by looking at Romans 7, the internal war that we all fight, that we all are faced with. We have desires to do what's right in our inner man. We're born again. We have a desire to do what's good and what honors and pleases God. Amen? Amen. But so often we find ourselves not carrying it out. So often we find ourselves in a situation where it's like, man, I'm not able. I'm not able to do this right now. Paul says more. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. Wretched man that I am. Have you ever felt that way? You fall again and then again. I'm a a mess. I'm a wretched man. In my inner being, in my spirit, in my heart, in my mind, I delight in God's word. I delight in God's law. I want to keep it. But man, this war is real. This struggle is real in here. This is because, as Paul says in Galatians 5, our flesh, the old man, indwelling sin, wages war against our spirit to keep us from doing the things we want to do. It's Galatians 5.17. That's the experience of every believer, this side of glorification. We experience this reality. So all of this, friends, that we've been considering, and we could talk about this all day, but all of this is why our hearts condemn us, because we sin. We forsake God at points, and we know that. We feel it like in our hearts and in our bones. I don't honor him the way that I should. Our hearts and our consciences as a result are troubled, greatly troubled at points. And this is real. So we can all say with the Apostle Paul, like, I'm the furthest thing from good. Me, I'm the furthest thing from good. Christ is perfect, but I am the furthest thing from that. I am a wretched man. So, okay. I assume that you're feeling that, that you resonates with your experience. And are you ready for this part? And like parenthesis, this is when you should be like on the edge of your seat and feeling the weight of your sin and saying, all right, brother, give us Christ. So we're going to do that now. Point two. Our ultimate assurance is found in God and the gospel. Number two, our ultimate assurance is found in God and the gospel. I use that word ultimate on purpose. I hope that becomes clear. There are other things that can bolster our assurance, like obedience, right? Fruit. But those things are not ultimate and they're not absolute. They could never be. 
Paul, as you know, as we kind of conclude our time thinking about Romans 7 along with 1 John 3, proclaims, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, hear these words. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my inner man, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Very next words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God's people said, amen, hallelujah, that that's true. Praise God for Jesus. So back to our text today. Let's put our eyes on verse 19. I already alluded to the fact that I don't know that in your ESV that four at the beginning of verse 20 necessarily should be there. So I'm just going to read it without that four in there. And it doesn't change the meaning of it. It just makes it a little more clear. By this, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him whenever our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. John, as he's written this letter, he, he writes that little clause by this a lot. By this we shall know. By this we shall know. He Over and over again. And the vast majority of the time that he writes that, it's pointing forward to what he's about to say. By this we know love, for example, we just considered it. By this we know love that Jesus gave his life for us. Right? I would contend that he is doing that same thing here. He's pointing forward. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart whenever our heart condemns us that God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So here's the key. It is the fact that God is greater than our heart and that he knows everything that ultimately assures us that we are of the truth and that ultimately comforts our hearts when our hearts condemn us. I'm going to say that again. It is the fact that God is greater than our heart and that he knows everything that ultimately assures us that we are of the truth and comforts our hearts when our hearts condemn us. John, throughout this letter, and especially right away, he wastes no time in the first chapter pointing the believer to the work of Christ in his or her place. Not even eight verses into the whole letter does he immediately start saying things like this. If If we say, excuse me, that we have no sin, We deceive ourselves. We're deluded. And the truth, the word of God is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he, God, is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He reiterates, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And the truth is not in us. He then goes on in the very first verse of chapter 2. Early part of the letter. I'm writing to you, beloved, so that you might not sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm writing so that you might not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is satisfied. The justice and the wrath of a righteous God for us. That's what he's done. And he's done that for the whole world, for anyone who would ever trust him. So in light of the way that John has written this letter, and even especially in light of these two verses, verses 19 and 20, 
as you sit here this morning, ask yourself this question, where is my hope? Where is my assurance? Where does it lie? So you often hear the phrase, with good reason, the only things that are certain are what? Death and taxes. I'm going to give you another one. Here's a third certainty to add to that list. This might not sound good, but it will get better. You will fail to meet God's righteous standard. Third certainty. Death, taxes, you and everyone will fail to meet God's righteous standard. So what does that mean? As you think about your hope, as I think about, as we think about our assurance that we're good with the holy God of the universe, what does that mean? That means that ultimately, in an absolute sense, our hope and our assurance have to be found outside of us. Have to be. Our hope and our assurance are found in Jesus. Period. The promises that God has made through Jesus and has accomplished through Jesus that he has revealed in his word is the only ground of our assurance and our hope. If we're talking in absolute terms, there is nowhere else to stand. There's nowhere else to look. As we so often rejoice over, as Martin Luther maybe famously said during the Reformation, it is something outside of us that saves what's wrong in us. It's always an outside-in reality in that sense. We are always looking outside of ourselves to Christ for the ground of our assurance and our standing before God. We're always, in one sense too, looking outside of ourselves to our brothers and sisters. We trust Christ. We love one another. We're going to think more about that even from these verses. Our hope and our assurance is found in Jesus because of who he is and also because of what he has done. And that's past tense, like it's over. The greatest thing in the world, perhaps, about the good news, it's news, it happened in time and space, but it's done. Like That's why when we come here, the main thing that we always need to hear is about what God in Christ has done. And then we can talk about what we should do. It's the difference in this religion versus any other. It's about news. This happened and it's finished. Righteousness and redemption has been accomplished. There's nothing to add to it. It's done. Trust Christ. Why? How? Because he has done everything that you need and I need. He lived a perfect life. We talked about how we all sin every day. He never did. He never had a wrong thought or a wrong desire, let alone did he say a wrong word or do a wrong thing. He was born under the law, just like us. He was born of woman under the law to redeem those who were born under the law. We fail to meet that perfect requirement of God's law and Christ fulfilled it in every way. God is a righteous God. He really does reward those who keep his law and he really punishes those who break it. We don't need to like soft pedal that stuff in the Bible. 
when it will talk about, well, God's a righteous judge. He rewards good and punishes evil. We don't need to soften that. We just say, amen, he does. The problem is nobody's good. What's amazing, though, is that Christ is perfect. And when we trust him, the justice of God has been satisfied. But the righteous requirements of God have been fulfilled, counted to a sinner by faith. Only doers of the law will be saved. Christ has done it. And we trust him as we imperfectly then strive to obey. But we strive to obey knowing that the righteousness, all the righteousness that I would ever need is mine now in Christ Jesus. This may be clear already, but part of Christ being born under the law, not only did he keep it perfectly so that his righteousness could be counted to us, but he also paid the penalty that lawbreakers deserve. So anyone who breaks God's law will be punished, namely by death and condemnation. Well, Christ did that. When Paul says in Galatians that I was crucified with Christ, that we died in him to the law, he means that. That Christ's death is counted as your death. It is counted as my death under the law. So that There is no longer any price to pay. There is no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. It's over. That transaction happened. It's real. You were purchased and so was I by the blood of Christ on the cross. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God in our place. And he got up on a Sunday morning about 2,000 years ago. He was put in the ground on a Friday. And then he got up on Sunday. It's, what we, it's why we gather on Sundays. We celebrate the resurrection every day here. We celebrate his death and his perfect life every Lord's Day when we gather. We might do that especially here in a few weeks, but it won't feel any different on Easter than it does right now. He got up from the dead so that in him we too will overcome the grave. So that in Christ we too will overcome sin. It will no longer indwell us. We will no longer have an internal war to fight. It will be eradicated. He got up from the grave to overthrow Satan and hell for us so that we too might conquer in Jesus. So these promises of the gospel, of the good news, are received completely by faith, apart from anything that we ever do, We look away from ourselves, our own notions of our own goodness. We look away from our sin and we trust Christ. And God says, righteous in him. Those wonderful promises of the gospel stand forever. And they stand without doubt because they are upheld by the faithfulness of God Almighty. The one who has made that promise is greater than everyone. And he will keep it. Through Christ, God will save all of his elect. Yes, I said the word. He will save all of his chosen ones. None will be lost. It's certain and it's over. That is why when John writes these words, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. That is why those words are the greatest comfort in the world 
to a struggling, doubting sinner. Why is that good? It's because our troubled consciences do not determine our standing before God. Christ does. Our feelings of fear, our feelings of unworthiness, our doubts that I'm, I know I'm going to be one of those that Christ turns away at the end of history and says, I never knew you. Those deep doubts we have don't determine our standing before God. Christ does. Our darkest time of wrestling, our deepest doubts do not determine are standing before God, but Christ does. So it is certain for you today that you will fail to meet God's righteous standard. I would also wager that it might be certain that your heart will condemn you today when you do fall. But then, as we look to the book, we reassure our hearts Because Christ has paid for every failing. Because he is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And we are his forever. God has promised that. And God is greater than our hearts. Thank God for his love, for his grace and for his faithfulness to always keep his promises in spite of how we feel. Thank God for his word that reveals Christ to us that puts rock under our feet when we are going here, there, and every place. Thank God that he is, in fact, greater than our hearts. Praise be to his name. Point number three. Number three. A comforted heart results in confidence. Number three. A comforted heart results in confidence. Put your eyes on verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him. We're going to stop for just a second. So when our hearts have been assured by the promises of God in Christ, there is tremendous blessing. We'll think of two that are in the text. First, if our heart doesn't condemn us, John tells us, we have confidence before God. So we know That we know that we know that he is good with me and I am good with him. I am in his favor because of the Lord Jesus. I am his child. He is my father. He is no longer my enemy, and my judge. So we know that we have confidence, just like the writer to the Hebrews encourages us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can approach the Lord that way. That's how we can stand before him. But secondly, when our hearts are assured, we have confidence as we approach God in prayer. It's in the text. We have confidence as we approach God in prayer as our hearts have been assured. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. We're going to think more about this together. We know that he will hear our prayers and we know that he will answer them. So just a quick aside, we don't have time to kind of launch into a topical sermon on prayer right now. I trust you don't want to do that, and I'm certainly not prepared to give one. This verse, it's very straightforward. It's a very simple word that John writes. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Obviously, that verse needs to be interpreted in light of the entire witness of Scripture. 
We don't pit one text against another one, right? We don't cancel out one verse with another verse. So that verse does not mean that we don't pray in Jesus' name, meaning we pray in Christ's merit, not ours. Right? The ultimate grounding of our standing before God is in Christ. So we pray that way. We pray according to God's will. I mean, you can flip over in 1 John to chapter 5 and verse 14, where he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. So John's not schizophrenic, right? I mean, he's writing in a consistent way. We know from Scripture that God does not change his mind like a man. We know that he has planned and declared the end from the beginning. We know that he will accomplish every one of his purposes, not just some. And we also know that if we ask, we will receive. We also know that God works all things for the eternal good of those who love him. He works all things for those who love him for their eternal good, for those whom have been called according to his purpose. We know that. And we also know that if we ask God for good things, he won't give us bad things, right? All of these things are true. He is a God of means, not just ends. We hold all of these things together. That God uses means like prayer to accomplish the things that he is meant to accomplish from eternity past. And then we just say, our mind is blank. But the point is this, friends, what's the takeaway? When our hearts are assured in Christ, we have confidence before God and we have confidence as we approach the Lord in prayer. We trust and know that we are heard and that our prayers will be answered. We know that as we have been comforted in the Lord. This is why our time spent in prayer is never wasted, ever. It's not. It's always a good use of time. As the writer to the Hebrews also tells us, let us then, because of Jesus, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. It's what we do. As we've been comforted in Christ, we go to the Lord. He hears, he answers. Number four, point number four. Obedience bolsters our confidence. Let me say that again. Obedience bolsters our confidence. So we've been, hopefully you can kind of see the progression. It's in, it's in John's words. So as our hearts are assured, that results in confidence, but then obedience also bolsters our confidence. Look at the second part of verse 22. So we've thought about if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. So in an absolute sense, as we've already talked about, we have confidence because of Christ and in Jesus. But John points us to another reason for confidence, another reason for confidence even in prayer. He tells us that we can know that God will hear and answer because we obey him. And because we do what pleases him. So friends, don't overthink this. This only makes sense. How so? If we are obeying God's commandments, we're keeping his commandments and we're doing what pleases him. We are absolutely without doubt walking in accord with this. We're living a life that's in alignment with the word of God. If we are keeping God's commandments and we are doing things that please him, again, John does not mean perfectly. He's been very clear about that through the letter. It's trajectory, not perfection. 
But if we're doing these things, we're not only walking in accord with God's word, we're walking in accord with his revealed will for us. And that only means that we will be praying prayers that are also in accord with God's word and that are also in accord with God's revealed will for us. I hope that makes sense. That as we are imperfectly but really obeying God and doing things that honor him, we are living a life that is aligned with his word and we are praying prayers that would also be aligned with that same word. And in a more general sense, if we just kind of pan out a little bit, even from the particular consideration of prayer. In a more general way, our confidence is bolstered. Our hope is kind of fanned, right? As we observe obedience in our lives. There, again, is not absolute hope or assurance in this, but there is real hope, real encouragement, real assurance that can be found in looking to the changes that have happened in our lives. If you sit sometime in the next week and you think about what you once were, think about how you once thought, think about things that you once found appealing that maybe you don't find as appealing, or maybe I don't think like I used to think. My mind really has been changed and transformed in some ways. I'm not there yet, but I'm different. Maybe I still do want to do some of the things that I used to do, but I actually battle those things because I know they're bad. Reflect on stuff like that. Where do you think that change came from? I mean, some of the things that some of us have been sort of taken out of and some of the things that have happened in some of our lives, I mean, it's a trajectory that we were headed on that we never could have rescued ourselves from. It is the work of God completely. We can reflect each of us on certain things in our lives and look back and think, oh my gosh, I was a fool then. Man, I look back and that was so terrible, but I didn't see it, but now I do. God has done that. He's given us those eyes to see. He is transforming us from the inside out. He's giving us the mind of Christ and we are obeying, really. So don't look to your obedience. Don't even look to the fruit of the Holy Spirit for your absolute assurance, but look to those things for encouragement. Point those things out to one another for encouragement. Hey, bro, like I've just observed in your life in the last six to 12 months, I've seen this and this. It's wonderful. Hey, sister, like from the time that I met you a few years ago, you're different than you were. God's at work. Praise God. It's good to do. It's one of the reasons we need one another. We are better able to discern growth in others than we are in ourselves. It only makes sense. We need the saints. Number five. So thirdly, we considered that as our hearts are reassured, we have confidence. Number four was obedience bolsters our confidence. Number five now is this, the Holy Spirit produces obedience and seals us unto salvation. Number five, I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit produces obedience and seals us unto salvation. Put your eyes on verse 23. John's going to unpack a little bit what he was even pointing to in verse 22. In verse 22, when he said, we keep God's commandments and we do what pleases him, he now says this, and this is his commandment. So when he's talking about that obedience, this is what he means. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So you would not be remiss, high level, 
to conclude, if I were to focus primarily on trusting Christ and loving the brothers and sisters, I would be doing well. That is absolutely true. Why? I mean, that, one could argue, is just like Christ's answer to the Pharisees about the greatest commandment and the second that's like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. We've thought about that many times before. Here we have it. Love God equals trust Christ. Love one another equals love your neighbor. If we were to focus on those things, not exclusively, but primarily, we would save ourselves from a lot of like just tension in our minds and we would be doing really well. I don't know if you've ever thought about Obeying a commandment of God being trusting Christ. But it, it is in that sense. This sounds very similar too to what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Like, what is God's command for us? What is the Father's will? Jesus tells us, John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is great stuff. This is God the Son talking about the will of the Father. What is it? This is the Father's will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. We don't often think about these things. The greatest thing that we could ever do in terms of pleasing God is to trust his son, to trust Christ. So if you sit here today and you're thinking, man, I'm not doing well at obeying the commandments. And I were to ask you, are you trusting the Lord Jesus? And you were to say, yeah, I am. In spite of everything in me, I'm trusting Christ to which we would then say, brother or sister, you are far better off than you even understand. The fact that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus. I hope that's of some encouragement to you. When Christ tells his disciples to love one another, as John has referred to multiple points in this letter, the end of verse 23, right? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. He's pointing us again to that upper room, the last night of Christ's life on earth, when he tells his disciples, I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. This is how the world will know that you're mine. It's by the love that you have for each other. So that's what John continues to point us to. But now I want to take us to verse 24 as we conclude our time together. We'll spend a few minutes here. We'll just read this straightforwardly. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We've talked before in the, in the section on practicing righteousness, we've talked about how keeping God's commandments is evidence, right, of what God has done in us. We're going to think about that more now. But then we also get this last part of verse 24. By this we know, again, he's pointing forward, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit we know that God abides in us and us in him. So what does that mean? How should we think about that? How is that an encouragement for you today? How will that be an encouragement to you on Tuesday morning? Right? That by the Spirit, you would know that you abide in God and Him in you. I'm going to consider two ways that this kind of truth of verse 24 helps us 
to have assurance. But I want to talk in a little bit of a way about how we would experience these realities. Because this sounds kind of ethereal. Like I know by the spirit that I'm in God and he's in me. Well, how do I how do I experience that? How do I know that, brother? Number one. Here we go. Number one, we know that the spirit is in us by observing the fruit of the spirit in our lives. So this is something that John is pointing us to. How do we experience these realities of verse 24? The fruit of God's spirit in our lives, the work of God in us. We've already been thinking about this some in particular in this context. The work of the spirit in two primary ways, one faith in Christ. You sit here this morning trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You did not produce that. The Holy Spirit of God alone produces that. You were dead. You had a heart of stone, right? You don't get deader than dead and you don't get harder than stone. And God Almighty said, live. And just like with Lazarus in the tomb, the one who gave the command gave the life. And we had the scales knocked off of our eyes and we beheld Jesus for the first time for who he really is. And we said, look, I don't know anything else really for sure, but I know that I need him and I want him. That's what happens at the new birth. But the second thing in terms of a big fruit of the spirit in this context that we would observe in ourselves and in one another is love for the brothers and love for the sisters, love for the brethren. So again, if you're thinking, okay, I'm trusting in Christ and I am imperfectly, but I'm really, I'm concerned for the well-being of my brothers and sisters. I really do have affection for my brothers and sisters in the faith. I'm seeking to do them good. I'm, I'm seeking to lean into them even so that they may be of help to me. We're living in this intentional community together in love and in We're locking arms together and we're helping one another follow Christ. If you are in any measure experiencing that reality, that too is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You did not produce that either. It's not natural. It's supernatural. The Spirit produces these things, faith in Christ, love for the brothers in a person. So in that sense... In the life of the believer, our obedience to God's commands and our doing what pleases him, it's simply the outworking of his spirit in us. This is why we'll so all the time talk about, like, what do we do? We trust Christ. We apply ordinary means and we rely upon the Holy Spirit because it is God who sanctifies. You don't do it. You participate in it in as much as because you're alive, you participate in life. But God sanctifies. And so we can observe that fruit and that working. And it can help us and encourage us in the walk. We will not be fully sanctified this side of heaven. We won't be perfect. And at the same time, the transformed life is real. And I'm looking at a room full of people whose lives have been transformed by the sovereign grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit as we have beheld Christ. Our faith in Jesus is real. Our love for one another is real, as imperfect as it may be. So these things will exist. This keeping God's commandments and all those kinds of things. These things will exist for certain in the life of the believer because of the Holy Spirit, not because of you. As we thought about a couple of weeks ago, it is because of the Holy Spirit that sanctification, practicing righteousness is a certainty for the believer. 
At the new birth, the Holy Spirit produced that in us and we trusted Christ. He continues to work in you even now to continue to give you faith in Christ. He uses means like this, like the word, like the fellowship of the saints and like this table that we're going to come to. The Spirit of God uses this to continue to sustain your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit works in us to produce love for each other. And then here are two things that he will never allow. Rest in these things. He will not allow you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to fall away. He will keep you. Secondly, he will not let you go on sinning, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago. He will not let you go on deliberately, unrepentantly sinning. He brings you back. Even if that season lasts for a while, he breaks your heart and you're you're repenting. The second piece of this, though, how do we experience these verse 24 realities? So whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. We've thought about how the spirit produces that obedience. But then there's also this piece. By this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So the second aspect of this is what I'm going to call the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Here we go. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. This is Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit of God in you testifies to you that you are a child of God. He testifies to us also that God's word is true. The saints through history have said this in talking about the Bible and its veracity, its truthfulness, its inerrancy, its dependability, its authority. Christians have always been very clear that there's all kinds of evidence that can be given in terms of manuscripts and traditions, all these things. But the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is essential. The Spirit of God bears witness to us that the word of God is trustworthy. Let me offer one other way to think about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those that on the face of it might seem discouraging, but it's really incredibly encouraging. This is perhaps especially relevant, and we're almost done. This is perhaps especially relevant for those who do have deep wrestlings with doubt. Deep, deep like valleys of depression and despair and all kinds of things. Dark nights of the soul, right? So have you ever, this is to any of, any of us, have you ever thought something like this in a very dark moment? You know, I would, I would walk away from this. I would walk away from Christ, from the church, from Christianity. I would walk away right now if I could. You ever thought that? You ever said something like that? I'd be done with it all. If I could, but I can't, I would happily punt the faith, but I can't. There's something about Jesus that I just can't walk away from. Have you ever felt that? You ever experienced that? So where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that comes from? Like everything in you is like, I'm going there. I'm I'm done. How? I'll let you boy. I'm out. Right. Everything in me is doing that. And it's just like, but there's something 
I can't leave Jesus. I know a number of us have felt that way. And a lot of times when we have that experience, we're devastated by it. Because it's like, oh my gosh, how much of a wreck am I? To which, okay, we can talk about the wreckage piece, but we need to also step into that moment and say, brother, sister, do you see? Do you see the Spirit of God at work in you? You've just said it. If it were up to you, you'd be done. But you can't leave it. Why? Because the Spirit is testifying to you that Jesus is the truth. It doesn't come from you. It didn't start with you. It won't be finished by you. So brother, sister, that is the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to your spirit that Christ is all, that you are God's and that God's word is true. It's just like after Jesus has fed the 5,000, this is also John chapter 6, right? And he's done the whole bit where he's talked about the bread is his flesh and the, you know, the, the drink and the wine is his blood and all these things. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are just like, what? And then the disciples come to him and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is a hard saying, right? And he looks at them after a brief interchange and he says, do you want to, people are leaving him. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave too? And what does Peter say in representation of the whole group? What does he say? It's like, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. That's what we're talking about. Where would we go? So weary saint or saint who's on a winning streak, it does not matter. Take heart in this, in these realities that God has said that he will put his spirit within us and he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. He will do that. He is doing that. Take heart that in Christ, as Paul says, you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed in Jesus, were sealed and promised by God in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory of God. The Holy Spirit is the down payment and the guarantee that you will live with God forever. As the apostle writes, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you just as needy now as we were before this sermon started. We pray that your word would do its work. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to work in us by your spirit so that we might keep trusting in Jesus and so that we might love one another. And we pray for all of us, and especially for those who are struggling and wrestling with doubt this morning and fear that you would comfort us with this great truth that you are greater than our hearts that when our hearts rise up to condemn us you are greater than them and that you have promised us that you are good with us and we are good with you in your son continue to testify to our spirit by your spirit that we are in fact in you so we pray that you would be doing that ministry now by your spirit as we come to the lord's table we pray that you would use this sacrament, this means that you have given us to continue to sustain faith. We pray that we would be encouraged as we come to feed on Christ this morning. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.